Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 150. Self is a network phenomenon. We're joined again by neuropsychologist and Dharma teacher Rick Hansen, who explains how we can view the Buddhist proposition of anatta, or selflessness, from the point of view of the brain. This is part two of a three-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. Another topic that you're really interested in and really geeky about, if you will, <laughs> is uh, the Buddhist notion of, of selflessness or anatta, as it's called in the Pali, as it relates to what we know about the brain or what you're calling the black box. And I was wondering if you could say a little bit about what we do know now about the brain and how the notion of selflessness or no self is related to that. Yes. So... I've often felt that the presentation of the discussion of self, not self, has been needlessly murky. And for me, at least, maybe because I'm dumb or something, I just couldn't get it. People would say, there is no self. I'm a psychologist, right? And I also did a lot of stuff, crazy stuff sometimes (laughs) in the human potential movement. You know, there's a saying in medicine that good judgment comes from experience. And experience comes from bad judgment. So I try to appreciate you know, my bad judgment and have some compassion for it. It's not to indulge in bad judgment past the point of understanding. But in any case, I had a fair amount of bad judgment, which led to experiences. Anyway, you know, so what do you mean there's not a self? I mean, I could think about Rick Hansen, you know, over time. I'm sure Vince Horn can think about Vince Horn over time. All right, what do we mean, right? So couple of key points here. First of all, as I read the Dharma, and especially I read the Pali Canon, let's kind of start there, which is amazingly clearly written, and particularly if you've got a good translation, you know, a little shout out, I particularly love Bhikkhu Bodhi's translations. I think if uh, I was stuck on a tropical island for the rest of my life, I sometimes think, what drug would I want with me? Above all others, it would be ibuprofen. But anyway, or... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> or what kind of cuisine would I want? You like for me it would be Thai, but uh, what Buddhist book? If you could have one Buddhist book for the rest of your life, what would it be? I'd have to say I think it would be what the Buddha said. Uh, Bhikkhu Bodhi's greatest hits of the Buddha anthology, arranged with great commentary. So, little plug there. In any case, first the Buddha's taught in two kinds of ways. He offered propositions about the way things are, and he suggested skillful means. And sometimes it's important to understand that he made he offered propositions about the way things are as skillful means primarily, and only secondarily as arguable propositions about reality, existence, philosophy, and so forth. So there are two ways to use what he taught about the way things are as some kind of subject that's open for debate or as a provisional proposition that you just kind of take on board because it facilitates pragmatically and skillfully progress on the path of awakening. And that distinction, actually, I found very useful. So in that light, A, anatta means not atman, because that's the narrow meaning. We have to embed the Buddha in his own causes and conditions. He was a Hindu yogi. 
He was a Brahmin embedded in that philosophical background. He was deeply trained. He had the equivalent, clearly, of a PhD in Hindu philosophy. And he was arguing against the existence of an absolute self-arising, independently existing soul that migrates from body to body to body eternally. That's the narrow meaning of anatta. Additionally, what you find in the Dharma is a ton of deconstruction of the psychological self, distinct from the soul, and an analysis that deconstructs that persistent sense of I, which I'll get to in a moment, as the independent and coherent and stable owner of experiences and agent of actions. So there's a distinction here between what he's saying about the non-existence of that absolutely self-arising soul and his very pragmatic analysis of the conventional sense of being a self, an I, an ego, which then drives suffering. And it also becomes an object of attachment. Self is one of the four great objects of attachment. The others are views, rites and rituals, and sense pleasure, or the avoidance of sense pain, right? So pragmatically, trying to help people suffer less, seeing that selfing, which I'll get to in a minute, as a verb so much, not so much a noun. In other words, that selfing causes suffering. The Buddha was trying to really work on people's heads to get them to deconstruct. The Buddha was a pre-modern, post-modernist, you know. He was so deconstructive in his approach, endlessly, relentlessly, fiercely, across all these settings for, you know, 30, 40 years of teaching. So let's make that distinction. Now, at this point, I'm going to talk about the psychological self. I'm going to zero in on that. In the conventional Western psychological and also Western philosophical notion that you could really boil it down that the conventional notion of the self is that it has four core attributes. One, it is unified. It is coherent. It is a one, right? There is an I. There are not lots of I's, okay? Two, it is stable. It is enduring, it doesn't change in its fundamental nature. In other words, the I I am today at my core is the same I I was, you know, in my earliest memory in childhood. The third attribute is that the I is independent. In other words, things happen to it, to be sure, and it has experiences, but it itself independently exists. It's not dependently originating. And the fourth and final core attribute of I is that it's the essential whole of the person. In other words, I encompass my experiences rather than my experiences encompass my I. Well, is that really true? All right. And I want to make a key distinction here between self and person. Without a doubt, there is a person. In other words, there's a body-mind that has continuity over time. I don't subscribe to the only mind theory that it's all made up. I think Shirley MacLaine is wrong. You know, I think that wing of Buddhism is just implausible. I think we can't prove it either way, but of the two possibilities, basically, either that there is material existence that consciousness is independent of, or the mind is just inventing all of this in some strange and marvelous way. I think of those two, the first one's by far and away the most plausible one, and, and that's the frame I'm operating in here, which is also the Western science frame, obviously. So as a person, yeah, there's Vince over there, there's Rick over here. Vince is a different person. Persons do have continuity. They do deserve good treatment, and they are morally responsible. I mean, obviously, it's a really interesting question in Buddhist ethics. If there is no I, how can I be put in jail for anything? Because I didn't do it. 
You know what I mean? Well, not so fast, you know? So this distinction between self and person, I think, is actually a very useful one. Okay. So that said, let's look at those four attributes. First, if you look at them in your own experience, if you just play around on retreat or you just walk across a room, is there really just one I or is it actually compounded of many parts? I got a lot of subpersonalities. It's a zoo in here. You know, like Walt Whitman said, I am multitudes. In our own experience, there are a lot of selves, a lot of subpersonalities. There's the, the little kid inside us, and then there's the sort of internalized nurturing figures who encourage us and soothe us. And then there's the internalized critical voices and pushy voices that tell us to get off our butt and do our homework faster, more, you know. And anyway, we have lots of parts to us. There's the part that sets the alarm early in the morning exercise, and the part that says, uh, set the alarm. <laughs> right? The second, in our own experience, is I the same always? Heck no, it's endlessly transient. Third, is I the whole of the self? No, it's just part of the whole person. Third, is it independent? No, all kinds of things affect our experience of who we are and affect which parts of the I show up. And then fourth, is it the whole of the person? No, not in our experience. It's just part of the person, right? We're surrounded by all kinds of other things. Well, very interestingly, those four contradictions that you can see directly through mindfulness in your own experience, which violate the four conventional attributes of I or self, are also found in the brain. In other words, researchers have found that if you have people do many kinds of self-related tasks, like recalling a personal memory or recognizing themselves distinct from others in a photograph of multiple people, or making a difficult choice, or reflecting on whether certain trait adjectives apply to them, like joyful or sorrowful, things like that, that you light up neural circuitry all over the freaking head. I mean, it's just all over the place. A and B, sidebar, those regions also do, you know, a hundred other things. In other words, self is not special inside the brain. There's no place in the brain, not the pineal gland, not nothing, where the little homunculus sits looking out through the eyes. It's just not the case. It's widely distributed. It's a network phenomenon. Self is a network phenomenon inside the brain, self-related activities. First. Second, in the brain, self-related circuitry is lighting up and then deactivating in an incredibly transient way. I think of it a little bit like a light show or those lights going up on the control board of uh, some stereos, you know, as the music is playing, you know, in different frequencies. That's the nature of selfing in the brain altogether. So it's transient. It's impermanent. And then third, it's not independent. Self-related functions, self-related representations in the brain and even the experience of subjectivity, which I'll get to in a minute, which is the kind of core origin of our fundamental sense of being a subject, a being, looking out through the eyes, if you will, or listening through the ears. All of those activations of selfing or representations or even subjectivity are highly dependent. They're not independent in the brain. Uh, they're highly dependent in the brain on all kinds of factors. Different you know, events occurring in the environment that are translated inside the brain, different learning inside the brain, and also the nature of self-related circuitry in the brain that's dependent on evolutionary time. We evolved as self to perform survival-based functions, particularly in relationship with others. That's mostly where selfing is found. Walk across the room in a retreat, let's say, with very, very little sense of self, and then for some reason raise your gaze and catch the eye of another person there, whoosh, within seconds, you can watch self just 
blossom up, you know, like a great big bubble. Usually, not always, but very, very often. So not independent, dependent in the brain. And then last, selfing, self, is just part of the massive circuitry of the brain. Self-related activations of different circuits are just a tiny percentage of the total circuitry in the brain as a whole. So self is part of the person. You know, the person is not part of the self, in a way. So you see, therefore, this disconfirmation right there. You see anatta, broadly defined, not just not soul, but I mean here, not self in the conventional Western sense. And I mean lowercase s, self, not capital S, self. It's just not the case in the brain. And it's also true that this experience of being a subject is not supported in the brain. In other words, what is supported in the brain is subjectivity, an inherent localization of experiencing within a particular perspective that's grounded in a particular body-mind. That does seem to be an inherent attribute of experiencing, at least in conventional experience. I think it's very interesting to contemplate what is actually happening in the in the brain, really, of someone moving through, let's say, the jhanas and then the four formless jhanas, where there really is very, very little signaling, if you will. There's very little information moving through the nervous system. And at that point, it's interesting to wonder if there is indeed an inherent subjectivity in awareness itself, when the mind and therefore the brain is extraordinarily quiet and still. I don't know. Or I'd rather I'd say, I'm not sure. But in conventional experience, there's an inherent subjectivity. No way around it. But here's what the brain does. Just like a movie creates the illusion of a horse running across a field uh, with 22 frames per second, 22 snapshots per second, the brain indexes across multiple moments of subjectivity to find an apparent enduring and coherent subject. But in fact, there isn't one. It just makes it up. It makes it up because it's useful, right? Organisms that feel like a subject and identify that subject with their body and identify that subject with their loved ones they care about, they're going to bust tush, right, to take good care and do those things that pass on gene copies. But the actual reality is there are just moments of subjectivity in the brain that then get indexed to posit or presume a subject. So at the end of the day, what we have in the brain to wrap up here are gazoodles of representations of self. So in that sense, self is real. In other words, there are real representations of self in the brain. It is real in that sense. That seems useful, too, to have a representation of self. Yeah. How could you walk around and... That's right. Function. I, absolutely. People who have dissociative experiences or schizophrenia who don't have a sense of self or with dementias, the circuitry of self begins to actually physically erode in the brain. It's tragic. It's very disorienting and very troubling for people. That all said, the uh, representations of self in the brain point to something that, as I've tried to show, is non-existent. And that's where, for me, the distinction between a horse and a unicorn, you know, I use in the book, and it's kind of playful, but it's useful for me. There are real representations of a horse in the brain, right? And what they represent is real. I think horses are real, okay? I don't think we just made them up in our minds. I think horses really have objective existence, all right? On the other hand, there are also lots of representations in the brain of a unicorn. Those representations are real, but that which they point to, that which they represent, has no material existence. I mean, I'm sorry, all you unicorn fans, but at least not in this 
parallel dimension or something like that. No unicorns here, at least so far that anyone's spotted, really. So self is like a unicorn. It's a useful fiction. It has its place when we use it skillfully. It's interesting how often the Buddha used the word I and you in the Pali Canon. You know, he used it in a very conventional and easy way. But to the extent that we identify with that fiction or that we seek to possess things from that fiction or we seek to glorify that fiction, that's when we create suffering for ourselves and other beings. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.